the information which becomes misinformation that permeates the sport of triathlon has come generally from swim coaches. And in competitive swimming, if you're going to swim the 50-meter freestyle at the Olympic Games, as an example, it's one length of the pool, okay? So the, the guys would line up on the far end, and they swim one length, max output, 21 seconds. Women, 24 seconds. The guys will breathe zero to one times, and the women will breathe one to two times. And it makes sense, because the duration of the event is 20 seconds, approximately. So if we then took that application that you don't need to breathe often and we brought it into our arena where our athletes are doing a minimum 10 12 minute swim for a super super sprint all the way up to two hours for an ironman well that application is nonsensical in this environment so we have to decide when we hear things and, and, and many times the athlete doesn't have a filter to know so you're just listening to the coach but the coach's duty his or her job is to then think about all the things that they were taught as coaches or they read do those applications actually apply to the audience that I'm now talking to? And I think that's where we have a, a, a cluster of misinformation in, in triathlon. So breathing with less frequency doesn't have a place in the sport of triathlon, in my opinion. Hey, Yogi Triathlete community, welcome back to the show. I'm Jess and I'm here with my co-host, Coach BJ. Today, we are incredibly grateful to be sharing our conversation with Coach Jerry Rodriguez. Jerry is the founder of Tower 26. He is the co-host of the Be Race Ready podcast with his right-hand man and professional triathlete, Jim Lubinsky. He's been a swimmer since before many of you were born and the owner of over 100 open water titles. He is the creator of the famed Tower 26 Beach Swim, which BJ was able to take part in this morning. So that said, we just want to dive right in literally. Um, Coach Jerry, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a long time um, because I've been following you really since we were back in Rhode Island in 2015. Right, and I think we corresponded via email and we, then... Yep. Uh, then you joined our plan for a while and then yep. moved to California. and Yeah, and it's been... <laughs> and then got is, busy. And now we're sitting at your kitchen table. Is that how we do these things? I, I like it. We're all in. That's <laughs> how it should be. East Coast stuff, get to the West yeah, Coast. Yeah, we, we get a hit on something and we just follow it 100%. But um, so I was watching the beach swim this morning. I actually went down to the beach, enjoyed a really nice meditation down there this morning. And um, But before and afterwards... Uh, you know, is watching these guys and you had a course set up and, and it was quite s like a simulation of how you would do, you know, how many Ironman are set up these days and, and other multiple swim uh, course loops. You're very methodical and you have these different phases of um, the training and now you guys are into kind of the, the race season and the open water swimming and how important is it for triathletes to be getting into the water? out there in the ocean or in a lake and how is that different from being in the pool well given that the majority of of triathlon races are in open water um it's helpful obviously to have exposure to it um, so if it could be built into one's training program they should do it but it shouldn't be a, a, an extraction from their pool sessions because the pool workouts are where you generally gain the the, the most of your um specific muscular endurance and power and technical gains and then all the skills for open water that's where you learn to do proper sighting and and um, all the the other necessary ingredients to race well in open water and then you would take those export it to to in our case our beach workouts and practice them there so you saw the uh, the live version of our weekly actually we have two a week uh, beach sessions and you happen to come by the way on probably one of the pristine mornings of uh we plan that of yeah. the year yeah i mean this yeah. is a beautiful southern california morning it was warm sun was out there's no um, early morning cloud cover which there usually is as you know there's no wind it was f uh you know flat water and then we had pretty low surf so it was a gorgeous morning yeah it was amazing i can't i don't know if i'll be able to do it justice but I was super excited to get up here and actually test well, out. Well, I think that picture that Jerry captured of <laughs> you is very much shows how excited I kept you running by him like, this is amazing. This is so awesome. <laughs> well, you'll have to show that to the audience. I will. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll post it in the, in the show notes. It was really, um, 
Well, to the point about open water swimming, I actually talked to a guy who has been swimming with your group. I can't remember his name. We were together in that group three. He had been doing open water for six years with you. And just this past year, he started to get into the pool. And so I asked him, like, what was, you know, what have you been able to translate from the pool to your open water? Because obviously you've got the open water experience and calmness. And he said, it's exactly what Jerry talks about, the, the tautness of the body, being able to, to be that straight line and be aware that you're not fishtailing or, or moving around. So that was coming from a different perspective because most people we see are swimming in the pool. Right. 99% of the time, sure. right? And then they get to race day. And we saw this at Oceanside, like it's their first time in the ocean and they're just getting in the water. Right. And it's, um, so what you saw this morning, I, there were maybe 120, 130 people there, whatever it may have been. And uh, a good portion of those swim in our pool program, but some don't like that gentleman. So I don't get access to coach them in the pool, obviously, if they're not swimming with us to help them technically. Uh, in open water, there's, you know, once we're at the beach, they're swimming in the ocean. I'm standing on the, on the shoreline, you know, giving the instruction. So there's not really much technical feedback regarding mechanics and so on that I can give. That's to be done in the swimming pool. That's why it's important for your first question, Jess, to make sure that we learn all of these things first in the swimming pool. And I think this is one of the mistakes that, that's made, actually. Many of the athletes, especially first-timers or even first two or three triathlons, think, well, let me just get to the ocean and, and go swim there. Well, that's fine, but you need good foundational training. You need good swimming mechanics. You need specific types of workouts to, if you want to have good performance, right? And those need to be done in the swimming pool under supervision of, uh, of a coach like BJ. Well, let's dive into that because you have a, a three-pronged approach, including like the tautness, the alignment. Can you go through that for people? Because um, when we talk about the, the technical aspect of the swim for what we've seen with athletes it's about well I've, this guy told me i have to have an eye you know a high elbow and then i've got to do the the fingertip drag and i've got it and so everybody's getting so much um detailed information but i love the way that you group it together into very into three really simple yet profound in the way that it will transform your swimming, the way you categorize um, and teach the technical piece of swimming? So, so, so the technique portion is one component. And sort of the way I look at swimming for, or, or improvement for, for the triathlete, now remember this is a very specific niche, right? This would be a little bit different if I were talking to an audience of competitive swimmers training for the Olympic Games, as an example, or the NC2A championships. These are triathletes where most of them don't have a swimming background. So the, the, the demands are uh, broad because it's open water. The skill set is generally low and they have a short time budget because they don't, a competitive swimmer is swimming over 20 hours a week. A triathlete has two, maybe three hours a week to train. So when we take in the information and as a coach, you have to decide, okay, how do I get that athlete to, to yield the greatest return in, in a short time frame. So for me, I, I look at it and I go, okay, there, there are really four components to this. There's, uh, most athletes are gonna need to have some form of uh, improved swim mechanics, proper training protocols in, 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 in the pool. Uh, they're gonna need some, some amount of, of accountability, right? To whether that's a coach or uh, a friend, somebody that knows something about the sport uh, and um, and with you know on all of these th those pieces are re really important and, and, the, and the portion that you talked about the technical improvement then once you get to that segment then we have to really look at swimming mechanics and say okay well what does the triathlete really need uh, relative to the swimmer so you gave an, a specific example and while you were talking I actually wrote it down so I could remember it fingertip drill well in my opinion that that would be a drill that's almost worthless for a triathlete and, and that may be controversial to some coaches listening to this, and they'll probably tune out right here or send some hate mail into you guys <laughs> and to me. That's okay. Take That's okay. what resonates, yes. leave the rest. <laughs> yeah, and, and right. I mean, but it, it's opinion-based, right? So it's right. very subjective. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that drill. That's actually a, a, a terrific drill for pool-polished swimmers. But when you look at the skills and the demands that are needed for open water, a fingertip drill doesn't have a high correlation for open water swimming 
because in fact, that drill, which teaches up very high elbow and a low wrist close to the water, wouldn't be uh, in high demand in open water because it's a dynamic environment. So you have a lot more chop, right? And utilizing that type of swim stroke, and that's on the, the external portion, the, the recovery phase, when you finish the power phase, the hand exits the water and it comes around in, in the air back to the front. That portion, we need more of a, almost a swinging type arm, a, a windmill type perhaps, or a higher hand. So a fingertip drill, it's a great tool on skill to learn in the pool, but that's not where your race resides. So we have to, for me at least, I look at what drills should we do that are directly related to the needs and the demands of the triathlete, and that drill is not one of them. It, it wouldn't be something I'd build, build into our repertoire as an example. It doesn't mean it's a wrong drill. You have to decide which drill goes for which audience, right? Right, and what you're talking about is that there's a difference between a triathlete swimmer and a swimmer who's focusing on swimming. Right, I mean, another one is, is the front, front quadrant swimming, okay, which is typically that sort of catch-up style swim stroke. Well, you've got to earn the right to do that stroke. The, the athletes that use that type of stroke are very elite athletes. These are your, this is your Michael Phelps type, okay? And, and it's a certain style that they've earned the right to use that style because they're generating so much power beneath the surface, okay? Hundreds of watts of output, up to a thousand watts of output for the sprinters. Do you know what the average triathlete puts out in wattage on the water? About 40 watts, okay? <laughs> substantially less. Yeah, substantially less. So let, let's yes. be kind, okay? So substantially less. If you put out so little wattage or power, each arm pull on the water is not going to generate a whole lot of forward movement, not a ton. So if you have one arm sitting out front just sort of gliding or sitting there doing nothing, waiting for the other arm to catch up to it to create this front quadrant look, and all that means is that both arms sit in the front portion of your body above your head. Uh, well, one arm sitting out there doing nothing, it's just waiting, it's creating no propulsion, and the other arm is coming around in the air creating no propulsion. So the only thing that's creating really any propulsion is the leftover velocity from the 40 watts you put out <laughs> in a high medium of resistance, which is water, on, on a kick, which a triathlete generally doesn't have a good kick. So front quadrant swimming, that application is also a weak application in general for a triathlete. I understand its significance for other athletes, but for the triathlete, low value. So we're talking very specificity, yeah. very specific stuff for the triathlete. And yeah. I think that's what resonated so well in my mind was this is for triathlon swimming. And when you say drills, I've had this conversation with athletes too. I don't, the way that I was you know, trained in swimming, drills were like the fingertip drill and the, the catch up and the side thing. What I consider, and this is just an interpretation. I, I, I feel like what we're doing with the Tower 26 stuff is, is I'm not, I, don't, I wouldn't call it drills. I, figure, I feel like it's strengthening and, pre, and body awareness and alleviating uh, or maybe dialing into the one thing that you're going to work on in that, point, in that moment. So the snorkel, the, the pull buoy, and, the, and the, the tethered bands. All you need to do is focus on your stroke. So... To me, those those drills just and I used to do a lot of them. Used to do a lot of them. I when was, we first started triathlon, we were we were, we were fingertip drivers. We were in Boulder working with um, putting out forty two yeah. watts. <laughs> we were pushing it. Yeah, well. but I mean that was that. That, that was what we were we informed of at that yeah. time. It wasn't the specific the specificity right. that you get. I, I, by the way, for those wonderful coaches that do all of these drills, th these are drills that have purpose. We then have to decide each individual coach, given that we have a very small time budget for the triathlete, couple hours a week, relative to the swimmer, 20 hours a week. So we're looking at one-tenth of the budget, okay? What drills should we use, okay? And are they going to correlate directly enough to improvement? And to me, that particular drill, as we're discussing, the fingertip drill would be a low correlation for this coach. I certainly recognize a coach in Boulder or wherever else might have a right, different right. opinion, and, and that's I respect that. I just right, but don't I agree like with that it. you're empowering the coaches to make the decision of what's going to be best use of um, their coaching time and and training time for that athlete because the pool, the pool is always 
kind of the the first thing to go, right? Because you got to drive to the pool, and some people it's not right next door. So and you got to get a lane because you can't share lanes because we hear crazy. crazy lane stories about pools across the country. But anyway, um, and they're all true. Yeah, I know they are all true. Um, but let's jump into what I had talk uh, what I had uh, touched upon, which was the like the tautness. I heard you talking about this, and I just love the way you describe it, like the importance of the tautness. And then, um, what does it go? The, the alignment, the alignment, and, and the propulsion. propulsion. So again, I looked at, at triathlon, which I got involved in 1983. So it's a long, long time, okay? And and I looked at the athletes participating, and it really hasn't. The complexion hasn't changed. They're generally non-swimmers. They don't have a collegiate swim background, so that's your majority, okay? And when we look at the time frame, the amount of hours per week, I then have to come up with as a coach, as a professional in the sport, I need to come up with a, in a, a simplistic way of delivering a methodology for their improvements that would have the highest yield, okay? This methodology may not work for uh, the NCAA swimmer swimming the 200-yard 200 200 freestyle or 200 meters at the, the Olympic trials or Olympic Games or national championships, but it would work for a triathlete based on time demands, and um, and their level coming into the sport, which is generally um, uh, unsophisticated for the most part, okay? So I look at the, the, the components that are necessary to become a, a pretty decent swimmer. And the first thing, the first piece, the foundation is body structure, holding your body with good presence, which we all know to, how to do that on land because we all walk erect, okay? But we don't in the water. Most people don't when they swim. Because swimming is relaxing when you really think about it for this sort of the lap swim, it's therapeutic, right? And, um, and the majority of your body weight is subsidized. It's displaced is actually the correct terminology. So that's why you've we've all gone to the pool and we've seen the 400-pound, really, really large man with the big, big beer belly swimming by us. Yeah, cruising by. Cruising yeah. by. Well, he learned to swim really well with proper uh, body structure a long time ago as a kid generally or even may have even some in college. And he's learned to hold that body structure. So whereas most folks don't, they go into the water and they, they're just loose. They just allow the water to absorb their body and they're very sort of placid or tender. And we need to have a firmer structure, not to be confused with a tight body structure, but when you walk on land, you don't think about it, but you're engaging a certain amount of muscles to have an erect posture, okay? And then you turn those muscles off when you lay in bed, and you just let your body be absorbed into the bed. Well, most people transfer that bed absorption to the swimming pool mm -hmm. because most of your weight is displaced. So we have to learn piece number one, body tautness. How do we hold our, our body structurally proper in the water? So that's the foundation. So we do a number of drills using that fancy word and or exercises to teach people to have some awareness of the body and then we go to step two which is alignment and that's basically in in simplistic terms when your car is out of alignment what happens it goes crooked it, it drives to the right or drives to the left because something is wrong with uh you know with, with the bearings or, or the frame or whatever it may be so you have to get it realigned well we have the same in swimming misalignment creates improper swimming so we teach the fundamentals of alignment, which is just to keep the body dead straight and basically swim in a straight line. And we have to identify what those properties are. And once we identify them, then we teach them, the athletes, how to do that. And then finally, the final piece is propulsion. Most people think that should be the first piece. But I can bring a bunch of six-year-old girls that will swim faster than most than 90% of triathletes. So it, it, can't be, uh, it can't be power, okay? It can't be just propulsion. That six-year-old girl doesn't have a lot of, or six-year-old boy doesn't have a whole lot of force. They're probably putting out the same 40, 40 watts, but they're holding their bodies well. They have good alignment, so they swim pretty darn fast. Mm -hmm. So I think once we nail these properties down, and I try to keep things simple, just three things, because once we get to too many more, it gets complicated. And that's more than enough to make you an adequate enough swimmer in triathlon. All you got to do is swim 48 minutes in an Ironman to be in the front pack. And that seems fast for the average triathlete, but in the swimming world, it's not that. It's it, it's not that it's pedestrian, but it's not fast. And do you see people wanting to fast forward to the propulsion because that's the power? Of course. Well, it, it, yeah. Well, yeah. just let me, you know, get there. <laughs> sure, like, let me get there. But 
so patience is a well in anything right in anything yeah which is why i don't really believe in a, a lot of these 12 week programs that are, that are that are available by many coaches i understand their commercial value uh but from a teaching perspective you need a longer platform but we live in an instant society people want quick returns i'm just a long-term guy <laughs> Hey, well, I mean, our, our thing that we say all the time is, you know, a little bit every day over a long period of time. Right. Isn't that what our parents taught us? Yeah. I believe so. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the recipe for success, for sure. Uh, so you speak a lot about presence. What is presence? Like, what is, what is your definition of presence? Well, I haven't thought about it in those terms as a definition, but f for, I think if we're able to sort of empty our mind of, of the clutter that goes through it and be able to, to, to have dedicated focus on the one thing that we're doing at that moment. So in this case, if it's swimming and the coach gives an instruction and BJ says, hey, I want you to work on tautness and here are the things I want you to think about, okay? then your job is to only think about those two or three cues that BJ may have given the athlete and nothing else. Empty the mind of all the other things that come in and bombard it at times, which could be, God, I gotta get to the office by nine o'clock this morning because I have a meeting with Shelly and if and Shelly doesn't like if I'm ever late, then you can kind of go through this whole tape in your head that you replay over and over while you're doing that exercise that BJ asked you to do, but without full presence. And the other example that you know we've all talked about is, well, go on a date with your wife and pull out your phone and start texting your buddy at work. Well, how's your wife gonna feel about that? Well, not so good, you're not present. You're physically there, but you're not emotionally present. So it's, it's one on one. It's you with yourself only on the particular item that you're doing uh, or focus or uh, whatever the, the, the drill, in this case, the example earlier, and that's all it is, nothing else. Shut everything else out, don't, don't complicate it. You just described meditation, basically. It's like you just go in and that focus point is perhaps your breath and all those other things are, you know, that noise in the head, it may or may not be there, but it's the, it's the decision and the dedication to stay focused on that one thing or those two things that BJ tells us to do and when we find ourselves in the commentary thinking about the meeting with Shelly, we bring ourselves back because right. we've decided and we're dedicated to the purpose of that workout. And to your point, we actually have to, I, I think, earn the right to think about that meeting with Shelly by doing enough repetitions of pres presence over a, a high frequency over a long duration of time so that the drill, tie it back to BJ's drill that he's given the athlete, has become so ingrained that they may not have to think about it as much anymore. But that takes years and years and years. You have to earn the right to do that. For instance, some athletes at the super elite level, when they're racing, they may have a song in their mind that they're replaying. And it's a way of taking their mind off the pain that they're in, the physical uh, athletic pain. And it's a way to calm them down. But the reason that they may not be specifically thinking about exact mechanics at that moment is, well, they've done thousands and thousands of repetitions in training of techn the technical aspect and, and the physical, physiological aspect of it. So it's ingrained. So we have to earn the right to think about Shelley uh, on the meeting at nine o'clock after multiple times of practice. There's a, there's a story of Michael Phelps, his coach, uh, was it Bob Bowerman? Yes talks about it, he was doing this really intense and tr crazy set, like really putting the intensity in. And um, he comes to the end of the, the lane after, after the, that set and he goes, did my mom just walk in? Because out of the corner of his eye, coming through the lobby, he could see that his mom had come in, in, into the, the, uh, the swimming area. So yeah, I think you, it, it gets to that point. Now we're not all Michael Phelps, so we have to do these reps. Yeah, We have to do these mental reps. And what I'd like to do a lot is have people use the pull clock you know understand how to read a pull clock use a pull clock and one of the key sessions that actually changed my swimming um, perspective which which added presence was the the it used to be the lionel sanders set the you do the 100 easy 180 percent 100 easy and then 100 fast and then you increase that second set to 200 to 300 and that allowed you to hit different efforts yes so you're not just swimming in one thing so you have to be present and you have to understand how many laps you're doing 
right? Because that, that's that's the that's what I've found to be the weakness of athletes. They want to they zone out. And they don't know how much they did. And it's one of the drawbacks. And I'm not beating up on athletes here, but I am a little bit. It's one of the drawbacks of the uh, of the Garmin watch, or fill in the, the it doesn't have to be a Garmin manufacturer, but the, yeah. the 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 data point that sits on their wrist and a bunch of pushing of the buttons. Because many folks don't even look at the data at that moment. They're just pushing buttons, start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. And then they go home later and they download the data two, three, four hours later, whatever it may be, and then view the data. So that's like going out on a date with your wife, not paying attention to her, right? And then like hitting record on your phone. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then four hours later, then, then you, you sort of read the transcript of your date with your wife and realize you weren't answering her questions. Well, that's not going to go over real well with your wife or wife to husband too. It plays both ways. So full presence is what's needed. So I, the idea of using the pool clock becomes important because you have to be engaged at the, at the wall or the turn wherever the clock is placed to take a look. You take a look and you can do a quick little math and go, okay, that was whatever, a minute and a half. And well, I'm going to do the same distance again. Let me see if I could sustain a minute and a half. So it keeps you engaged. You're constantly engaged. We can do that with the Garmin, but many don't. So it, 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 it becomes a tool that doesn't get used in its best way. That's why I prefer that. Our, in fact, at a certain portion of the season, our athletes can't wear them. I make them take, about, take them off their wrists and put it on the pool. Wow. Because some just get too addicted some, to it. Uh, yeah, I'm they're sure not present. Coming back to your, yeah. well, sure, one guy was just out of his mind. He couldn't, I mean, he had complete separation anxiety. And I had to say, hey, buddy, this is, you're, 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 you're not present. And this is one of the reasons why. Take the thing off your wrist and learn to, learn to be fully engaged with, with your inner self rather than what's going on in your on your yeah. left wrist and when we become attached to something i mean i've seen this with with bj through an injury he didn't realize like he was so attached to the sport of triathlon that when he was injured pretty severely and it was taken away from him that it was a panic that we rely so much it becomes a part of our identity right of course so we had an athlete who uh is racing I, I think next month and you were asking her you know what's what's your goal for this race and she said something like oh, i just i just want to i just want to go out i want to have fun i want to i'm paraphrasing here see what's possible and and really dig into my relationship with this sport and, and how i you know kind of like what the feel is about moving forward because she's still you know maybe about a couple years into the sport but she's got some incredible potential and so BJ read that to me and I was like, tell her to race without the watch. Like if she wants to go out and have fun and really look, feel that relationship and feel the race and, you know, just see what's possible. Like what if, so he was like, oh my God, that's a great idea. And then, and she's all on board, but like, he, what did you get? Like the, the uh, old face. Yeah. Like, like whoa, wow. Like, yep. whoa, didn't know that was coming back. <laughs> yeah, careful what you're asking <laughs> But for. that's so exciting <laughs> to me, you know, and she'll do it because she's that strong and she's right. that open to you know, being her best. Mm -hmm. And I, for me, I believe that presence is the place where we are at our greatest potential and no other place. Right. You know, and there's an argument to be built, obviously, on, on the corollary uh, that, hey, my watch keeps me present. Well, that's, that's fine. If it does, then use it. But test both. Okay. It doesn't have to be no watch or all watch right. go ahead and test both but whatever keeps can keep you fully engaged and not have your mind wandering off to sh the shelley meeting in the example at nine o'clock then that's what we put into play i think what you did this morning was uh was an up level for that where you had us swim the first three loops easy not a hard stroke i think you say correct and you kept you check in with people when they come back you're like oh that first one was easy without a hard stroke but it's 100 to 120 people now, but to get that gut check, okay, are you going easy? Well, now we're going to elevate it these next two loops because that first one was easy, right, guys? Right. And, and what, what we find that happens, especially in these open water workouts, is because it's, it's an open environment, folks, and, and we, as you recognize, we se you know, um, segment the folks into groups, level one, level two, level three, level four, level five, because the audience is large, right? And you have all the different abilities, so we faster people are group one, then group two, and so on. Many want to be in a group higher. So I'm in group four, I want to be in group three today, or I'm in group two, I want to make it to group one. Well, so th they end up going fast in the warm-up, 
to get into a, an appropriate group and they're, they're missing the purpose of, of what we're trying to do. And I know what the workout was this morning. It was, as, as you know, it was going to be aggressive in, in uh, duration with intensity towards the end. So to be able to execute that with good purpose, you needed to start pretty easy. If you went too fast too soon, earlier on, you wouldn't be able to finish that workout because that was a pretty demanding session, right? Yeah, and you didn't reveal the full session to us at the start. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, you kind of kept us, like, I mean, we know, I, I know as a, as part of your program, like, I know that the tasty stuff comes at the end. Like, you need a warm-up. Like, you need to really get warmed up. Right. So to have that, that I guess it's like your own, your, your confidence, right? Your check the ego, right? This is just, he's that's just asked us to have three easy loops. Am I really going easy today? Am I easy today? Well, I'm trying to get them to be engaged with, with, with the prescription that's been handed out as opposed to getting carried away into their own uh, personal need, perhaps. Um, I'm the coach, right? Mm -hmm. I'm the one that knows, uh, at the risk of sounding a little arrogant here, probably more than all of those people added together. So go with the program and you'll make improvements. Do your well, own thing and then you kind of blow the purpose of the session. That, I mean, in what you're talking about there is trust, right? Trust, trusting, trusting the plan, like the big plan, right. but trusting every individual workout. Correct. And that um, that it all has a purpose, that it, and especially when we're talking about swimming, as we've already discussed, that it's you know a very small amount of time that somebody has, that each workout is very purposeful, and so execute it as described, and you will receive the benefit. But we get in the way. Right, I, I think so, that's how it should be, but at the same time, <laughs> the, the athlete has to have trust in, in the coach, so I have to, earn that trust and I recognize that takes time. Um, but once that trust is earned, then, you know, stay in the program. There's, there's, there's a level of collaboration also, obviously with athletes. Um, and, but you have to earn that collaboration. If you don't have a background, the collaboration is a hundred to zero because the coach knows and you don't. And then over time, the ratio shifts, you know, you start gaining 10%, then it's 90, 10, then it's 80, 20, whatever it may be, but you have to earn the right for the collaboration especially if you don't have any sort of background. If Michael Phelps showed up, well, it's still going to start almost 100 to zero because he doesn't have open water experience, but he has a whole lot of swimming experience and pretty quick he'll gather the tools and then it, it, the collaboration ends up being much higher. How has, what, what has shaped you as, the, as, a, as an athlete? So where have you come from in your you know, your early years in swimming, who was, maybe who was your mentor or how did you fail and learn from, from maybe some other coaches that, that brought you to this point, to your philosophy, or was it all just your experience, personal experience? Uh, so I was, I have a, a terrific family and my parents were super involved in, in my swimming as a kid growing up. And I started at a young age at seven and my dad came to every single practice and didn't get involved with any of the politics that goes on with the sport or he just stayed away, sat in the bleachers, looked at the workouts and always had sort of these little pearls of wisdom along the way to, to, to hand out. And, um, and I learned over time that paying attention and trusting your coach, it's no different than your, your partner your, in your relationship. You have to trust your partner. That builds a stronger relationship. So I gave, I showed up, I, was, I learned to be fully present and to give. And you, you give and you ultimately receive, right, over time. So, plus I wasn't the most talented athlete. So for me, I felt I always had to have a higher frequency, don't miss, work harder, all those types of things, because I wasn't the most talented athlete by any means. Um, but I think that engagement and, and learning that from a little kid to be fully engaged was super, super helpful. And then we started swimming uh, at a coach. Uh, my first coach was very, uh, I'd say, sort of forward thinking because we're talking about the, excuse the time frame here, but we're talking about the end of the 60s and early 70s, okay? He, he had a swimming in open water uh, three times a week, four months a year. Uh, so I swam at the beach Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings, and then Sundays. Uh, so that's four times a week, I guess, uh, for several months for a particular open water race that we had and started doing that from nine or 10 years old. Uh, so acquired lots of skills and, um, and then it was sort of my thing. Everyone ends up being 
sort of an event that's there that was a little bit more, I was more comfortable in it and so on. And then it was a matter of learning as much as I could. And if I wanted to race really well, how do I race against the guys that are so much faster than me in the pool? So for me, it was a lot of self-taught, well, there are a certain bunch of skills in open water that those guys that I didn't have in the pool, but I'm learning them in open water. So let me make sure I learn those really, really well. And that could make up for some differences in how much they're beating me in the swimming pool. Because once you get into the open water, different rules. It's drafting. It's a chess game. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's a, how good could you play chess? So for me, it was, okay, let me identify the skills that are needed. How can I uh, cover up my warts, so to speak, and then really acquire a set of tools and skills that are indigenous to the environment that we're in that none of these other guys have because they're all training in the pool, thinking that you can just show up in open water and do really well. Well, not so much. So I was able to race at a fairly competitive level or quite competitive level with relatively not, I wasn't a great swimmer. I was an okay pool swimmer, but in open water, badass. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm joking yeah. by saying that, but you know. No, yeah. you um, should own that for sure. I'm assuming you experienced times of doubt as a, as you were growing up and, and in competition and what is your experience with with just that relationship with doubt, is it helpful? How do you get to the other side of it? We all experience it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, I, I, I sort of went to the antidote and, and, and thought, you know, these, these things enter my mind and, and I always came back to, well, you know what? You did this, this, and this in workout, or you did that, that, and that. So why are you letting these thoughts come into to your mind? And as silly as this seems, I, I remember, uh, maybe 20 years ago when there was a period of high doubt. <laughs> this is crazy. I've never really talked about this, but I would recite my resume to myself. You know, I go, you know what? You grew up in a third world country. You got a chance to come to America. Not many people have that opportunity. You got yourself through school. You, you your family, you, you have, they did the best they could to help you get here. You're here now. And and look what you've done. You've made it through the system. Uh, you had no friends or family in, in the United States. You started at 16 years old. How many 16-year-olds do that? And, and, and it's not necessarily a big deal, but those are the hurdles that many people might think, uh, you know, oh, wow. Well, that was my normal. But that also takes some, you know, you've got to have some kahunas to do that, too. Mm -hmm. So I'd just go, okay, hey. You left Trinidad, that third world place at 16. You came here, you did it on your own. You did this, you did that, you kept going. So I'd recite, and what you're really doing is putting the positive things into your container, right? Into your, the checkup from the neck up, right? You're putting the positive things in and trying to outflow those negative doubts that you talked about that entered, which, which are normal. So my teaching tool now for that is, I call it the three second rule, when those when those the good wolf and the bad wolf story when when they you know we, we, we make a decision when you have negative thor thoughts the negative thoughts are the bad wolf on your shoulder and the positive thoughts are the good wolf on the other shoulder well the wolf that wins is the wolf you feed so if you feed the negative wolf give it more negative thoughts well that becomes strong and the good wolf falls apart if you feed the good wolf then that's the one that grows and the negative one falls apart so the resume citing at that time, I didn't know the good wolf, bad wolf story, but was basically a way of feeding the good wolf, right? So now the message when I talk to our athletes is you got three seconds to eradicate the bad wolf or the negative thoughts. Just give it three seconds to rattle around in there, and then you got to kick it out. Because if it stays longer, it's starting to seed, okay? It's, it's got a little plant in there, and it's starting to bud now. I'm just going to get some flowers. You don't want that to happen, right? And it's normal, by the way. It happens to everybody. It happened to Mark Spitz at the 1972 Olympic Games after he won five gold medals and won five world records and had five world records. In his sixth race, the negative thoughts entered his mind. It happens to everybody. So it's just a matter of recognizing it. Hey, that's, that's normal. We're human, not robots. And now that it enters, what do we do? So we get some tools. One of the tools is, okay, let's go into the three-second rule and let's start getting, you know, the, the sexy word is positive affirmations but what we're really doing is 
trying to put a stoppage, mm -hmm. a blockage on, on the negative stuff that starts ruminating in there. And boy, it could take over at times, can't it? Yeah, yeah. And, the, and the more that that bad wolf gets fed, like you, were, like you said, like now it's got leaves, now it's got flowers. And the other thing that's happening as it's growing up, the roots are getting deeper. Yes. Right? You ever seen those old trees where the, you're like, whoa, look at those roots and the roots will get deeper and it'll be, it'll be harder not to feed it. So it's three, I love the three seconds, like just give it three seconds and it's a focus. What you were doing so authentically was that you were focusing on how far you have come and so that could be the good wolf. And mm -hmm. then the bad wolf is focusing on how far you still have to go and we have a little bit of this social programming and, and conditioning in, in this society specifically where it, it leans a little bit more to the bad wolf, right? There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of, um, you know, you need this. You, you, you still have to do this. Like lack, you know, that we kind of grow up in this energy of lack. And we really must, I believe, and, and athletes are, are tailor-made for this because we're, we have so much tenacity that we really need to rise above and, and realize that this is within our power. But that's where training comes in, right? That, that's going to your workouts, having a, a, a good coach like many athletes do, being present, coming back to the original mm -hmm. thing that we started off with, and then doing that with high frequency uh, repetition over a sustained period of time, which is consistency. There's a difference between uh, frequency and consistency. Frequency is number of times per week, as an example, or, or within some time frame, and then consistency is duration over multiple months and years. So you string those together, and that starts planting the stronger roots of the good tree or the good wolf type thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, everyone's got both, their thing. Works both ways, right? Sure. The more we feed the good wolf, the more sure. we focus on how far we've come, those roots are going to get deeper. But I think one of the things that for your audience, if it's helpful, certainly it's helpful for me. My wife even helped me with this. Um, the way she coined it, and, and I used it to, to, to use an analogy for our athletes. In every 30-day cycle, because we, we run a calendar, 12 months a year calendar, right? So in every month, we have, a, let's say, 30, we have 30 days. Some days, some months are 28, some are 31, but 30 days. Out of those 30 days, most days are ordinary days. Stuff just moves along. Then you have some really extraordinary days. Two or three of those, it's like, wow, I'm top of the world. You know, I got it nailed. And then you have some really, really crappy days, kind of the bad wolf days. Once we can recognize that that's normal, that's what happens to everybody. It's not unique to you while you're going through it. In fact, your good buddy, he or she might be going through the same thing at the same time, but we have this way of the grass is greener at times, right? Well, it, it, uh, their stuff just looks great. Well, everybody has brown grass at times. So we all have these little extreme ends, super, super great days, a couple times, a few times a month, super, super crappy days, and a whole bunch of ordinary days. Once we recognize that and go, okay, I'm in one of those crappy days right now, so I just got to use my tools that I've learned what to do to help me through these days, knowing that a whole bunch of ordinary ones are coming, and even some extraordinary ones are going to happen. And we just keep a time yeah. frame. All right, here's how it works. I think a lot of, and I think a lot of people give up way too soon for that consistency, for that consistency over the long period. So they have these ordinary days, they have the bad ones, they have the good ones, but things aren't happening quick enough, according to their timeline. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, yeah. some of that maybe societal or environmental, how they were brought up and so on. But it's once you have mentors or good coaches or good parents, I mean, I think you can help uh, good bosses perhaps at work that can help you through those types of things and recognize that it's, it's normal stuff. We're it humans. It's normal stuff. It's, yeah. it's, and it's the way that this flow of life works. And one of the things I used to say a lot when we first started this podcast, like I was saying, I used to record intros and everything. And, and um, was that one of the messages that we want to send to the world is that you're not alone. Like you're not alone. Like the, the, the doubt that you experience is the doubt that I've experienced is the doubt that you've experienced. Everybody. Right? Sure. That, you know, professional triathletes that we've had on the show that everybody experiences this and it's just accepting that it's normal. It's, it's not that big of a deal and then choose what you're going to feed. Uh, and little message here that, and so my dad, when I'd go do, do these open water workouts when I was a kid, 10 years old, 11, 12 years old, and all, most of us, they are just, the coach had just started with some younger kids. We were the young ones, right? In fact, you, you had to be, I think you had to be 16 to swim the race. 
And because our coach brought in this young group of us involved, they, they had lowered the age to 12 to be able to participate in that race. But we, so we were training with the 16-year-olds, okay, this group of kids of 10, 11, 12 years old. And, um, and my dad always said, when you're tired and you're fatigued, and that's when the negative thoughts are going to enter your mind, you, he said, just remember, the guy next to you is just as tired. Otherwise, he wouldn't be next to you. He'd be ahead of you. And every time I'd go through that thing of, man, I'm hurting, and, and I look across, and because it's easier to think that that guy is feeling good. But if they were feeling good, they wouldn't be next to me. They'd be ahead of me. So I would turn the thinking around, but somebody had to teach me that. That was my dad, right? So you then take that little nugget, and you advance it into your, into your athletics and into your life and so forth and so on. But somebody needs to teach you those things. Yeah, yeah. So. And you just dropped that little wisdom That's very bomb wise. to, yeah, to yeah. the universe. I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Because that translates to everything too. Like, especially sure. on the run, like when you're just slogging along at the end of the run and you're like, oh my God, this guy's, they look at the number on the calf and they're like, well, this guy's my age, my age group and he's trucking along, but isn't he going the same pace yeah. as but, you? And you can't feel what that person's feeling. I remember I right. used to think that at Ironman, I would be like, my, my body would be in a big world of hurt and I would look at other bodies and they just looked like they were moving, but I had to remind myself that most likely they were they were feeling a very similar level of sensation as to what I was feeling. And it's like, we just have to remember those things. We are more similar than we are different. I, I, point well taken in everything, mm -hmm. so. All right, let's, um, let's talk about breathing. Mm -hmm. We've seen people holding their breath, um, coming to us saying that somebody told them only to breathe every 10 strokes and, um, don't only breathe to one side, breathe to both sides. So what's your philosophy on breathing for triathletes? So important distinction for triathletes because the information which becomes misinformation that permeates the sport of triathlon has come generally from swim coaches. And in competitive swimming, if you're going to swim the 50-meter freestyle at the Olympic Games, as an example, it's one length of the pool, okay? So the, the guys would line up on the far end and they swim one length max output 21 seconds women 24 seconds the guys will breathe zero to one times and the women will breathe one to two times and it makes sense because the duration of the event is 20 seconds approximately so if we then took that application that you don't need to breathe often and we brought it into our arena where our athletes are doing a minimum 10, 12 minute swim for a super, super sprint all the way up to two hours for an Ironman. Well, that application is nonsensical in this environment. So we have to decide when we hear things, and, and, and many times the athlete doesn't have a filter to know, so you're just listening to the coach. But the coach's duty, his or her job, is to then think about all the things that they were taught as coaches or they read. Do those applications actually apply to the audience that I'm now talking to? And I think that's where we have a, a, a cluster of misinformation in, in triathlon. So breathing with less frequency doesn't have a place in the sport of triathlon, in my opinion. Uh, so how often should we breathe? Every two strokes. So if you're a right-sided breather, you breathe every right side, every time your right arm comes around. If you're a left-sided breather, you breathe every time your left arm comes around. Now the question becomes, okay, should I breathe on both sides? And well, if you did, then, that, then that's breathing every three strokes. Well, that doesn't meet your definition, Jerry. Well but we still could breathe on both sides. We would just breathe a bunch of times to the right side, five, four, five, six, seven times, and then we'll switch over and breathe four, five, or six, or seven times to the left side. So we still get that balance, which is basically what the coach or athlete's looking for. And it's just another skill. It's another tool to be able to access and breathe on your, let's say, your non-comfort side initially. Uh, but we still want to oxygenate ourselves. I mean, at the end of the day, oxygen is your number one source of fuel doesn't matter how many cliff bars, power bars, uh, gel packs, uh, coke you eat, you drink at the end of your race. It doesn't matter. It's all secondary to oxygen. So, and we're not doing a 20 second race. So oxygen is your main source of fuel. So utilize it and don't hold your breath either. You don't hold your breath when you ride your bike and you don't hold your breath while you run. What makes you think you should hold it while you're swimming? Cause some coach says it makes you more buoyant is the, is the perhaps advantage perhaps and there's no studies to show that there is of holding your breath outweigh the disadvantage of a 
carbon dioxide buildup that creates a problem physiologically? Well, no, it's not. So we, we have to look at these applications from the sport of competitive swimming and decide which apply to this particular indigenous sport, this particular segment of swimming. This is one segment, triathlon swimming. Mm -hmm. You have global swimming, elite competitive swimming, master swimming, lap swimming, uh, and this is triathlon swimming. So certain things apply here. And by the way, some of the things that apply here don't apply to competitive swimming in the, in the swimming pool. So you wouldn't breathe every two strokes with a 50-meter freestyle. That wouldn't be sensible, just as you wouldn't hold your breath doing a half Ironman Olympic distance on Ironman swim. I feel that two things. One, when they get to that four strokes or three strokes or five strokes, whatever they're doing, they're comfortable. In my experience, I've seen that they're comfortable. They're, they're comfortably swimming. They're in a nice rhythm. Mm -hmm, sure. When you begin to add the breathing every two strokes, the, it, auto, it automatically increases the, num, the, the amount of times you're lifting your head. Now you're creating some other, other stuff going on with your swim stroke. And so in my experience with working with athletes, it, it raises their heart rate a little bit and it gives them a little bit of anxious energy sure. and anxiety. So what it does, the athlete that breathes less frequently than every two strokes, that's in your example, every fourth strokes, they're used to taking a big breath and then holding it for a couple of seconds, a few seconds before they take a big breath again. So when you're holding your breath, if we held our breath while running or riding, we cannot go at a, at, 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 it, it forces us to reduce our, uh, our output levels. We can't sustain a high performance level if you're holding your breath because oxygen is your main source of fuel, right? So you're forced to reduce effort to sustain this less frequent oxygen uptake. When we then ask the athlete to increase their oxygen uptake, they're not familiar with doing it. So we start with lack of familiarity, which takes adaptation. So there's a period of time that we have to build in for comfort and, and, and have them recognize it's not going to feel comfortably initially. And given that you're in water, and the thing about being in water, obviously, there's the, the anxiety builds up sooner because we can die. I mean, we get right down to it. If you get tired running, guess what? Walk. Get tired riding your bike, coast or get off your bike and walk. Get tired swimming, blah, 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 down to the bottom of the pool. So that fear sets in. So we, we have higher anxiety levels just based on, 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 on the nature of, of the activity. So we have to let the athlete know that this is going to be uncomfortable for a period of time, but ultimately you are increasing your, your opportunity for success for performance. If you want performance, if you just want to breathe every four strokes and have comfort and finish the swim, and that's your goal, then carry on. I love that. I love that. Because <laughs> that's such a good, you're meeting the athlete where they're at. Like you're actually asking them to question why they're doing this. Like if that's, it's totally fine. Sure. Totally fine if you want to go to the pool, go to these open water swims and just swim or one or two loops. That's totally fine. But if you are really committed to being your best self and you want to perform well, these are the things that you need to do. And it's uncomfortable and that's scary. Right, but one of the valuable things of uh, being uncomfortable for a while and actually ultimately gaining better performance is it feeds the good wolf, right? You become it adds a, to your resume. Yes, it, it, uh, perfect. Well, well, well <laughs> looped around, it adds to your resume. And it gives us self-esteem, positive self-esteem, and we feel better. Okay, I've made an imp a personal improvement. It has nothing to do with winning. Uh, it has nothing to do with winning my age group or none of that stuff. It just has to do with personal feeling. You, we feel we're humans. We actually, we, we, we want and need love. We, we enjoy attention as much as some folks are not willing to admit it, but it feels good to, to, uh, to, to receive it. And it also feels good internally when we do something that, uh, where we showed we improved ourselves. So it comes back looped all the way around to enhance resume. Yeah, I, can, I can relate to uh, one experience. We had a phone call a couple of years ago, I want to say like two years ago, and I think one of the deficiencies was open water swimming that I didn't have. Yes. I chose to ignore that, <laughs> right? <laughs> Go through two Ironman races, no increase in my resume times. And this is two early races, I think, May and... June was Boulder. And then I decided, I think Jerry was onto something. Maybe I need to get into the open water a couple of years later. <laughs> so for the next eight weeks at the end of my street is the ocean, Pacific ocean. There's no reason why I can't put on my wetsuit, walk a block and jump in. 
And I started swimming twice a week for eight weeks. Go to Mount Tremblant, resume builder. Right. Best yeah. race ever. I'm glad you're telling me this now and not while you were on the program with us. <laughs> Given that the beach is that close. It's so close. Yeah. But, um, but I can think of every excuse in the book not sure. to do it. Of course. I need to get better running and mm -hmm. I really need to, you know, I can't do it today. Everything. You gave me, you gave me permission. You gave me the license. This is what you need to be doing. And I chose not to do it. Yet, when I chose to listen to the advice, things started to happen. And so, for, for our listeners out there, it's important to listen to the information that's provided. And it's your choice to decide to, to act on that information or choose, know that you have a choice, or choose to ignore that. Well, and I would, I would watch, I would be on high alert for the things that, like Jerry giving you exactly what you knew you needed. I knew I, I needed on, that. I would be on Absolutely. high alert for when we decide not to take action on those. And just just high alert as in pay attention to that. What's underneath that? Probably fear. Fear of water, fear of being alone, fear of death, like you were saying. Sure. Like all the nor normal, it's normal. That's right. not going to go away on its own. So you're either going to live the rest of your, your life with it or you're going to walk 400 steps to the beach and you're going to get in the water and you're going to get to the other side of it. Yeah. It's actually that simple. <laughs> we, uh, we tend to complicate things. You know, mm -hmm. s stuff is simple. People are complicated. Okay? We overcomplicate things. Uh, the, the, the brain has an interesting way of doing that. And if we just keep it super simple, gosh, the beach is. You just gave yourself the formula in the sense of the beach is right there. It, that close. You gave yourself a bunch of reasons not to go as opposed to reasons to go. And then finally you, you came around. It's no different than the dad and the kid. I mean, you know, parents parents have to see their kids fall a few times. If they only pick them up every time they fell, they're not really helping them. They got to fall and stumble and then recognize, well, I've made some mistakes here mm -hmm. and don't make these mistakes and I wouldn't fall the same way. So it's it's all normal, but... It's all normal. Yeah, it, it's it, all, it is. It's all normal. I've been given suggestions that I know I it would behoove me to listen to and take action on and I've delayed we've all done it well some people have faster pathways okay they're just um, maybe more innately intelligent uh, uh, born perhaps more driven uh, there's some in innate qualities that folks are born with and then there's some who aren't well it doesn't because you aren't it doesn't give you a license not to just means okay now i have to work harder at that thing you can strengthen that you part can strengthen you. that mm -hmm. part but the same person was born with these positive ingredients they also have some negative things we just don't see them because we always look at the greener grass and at somebody's home as an example but we all have our stuff every single person yep 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 absolutely we're all in we're all in a body yeah right? we're all human as we start to wrap this up one thing that we're seeing is the removal of warm-up swims especially we're talking Ironman distance specifically, half Ironman distance. And as we were talking about breathing, breathing being one of those things that, you know, can create a lot of panic. Once we get into the water, we start to lose our breath. And, you know, breathing is just a muscular exercise. And so getting those breathing muscles open, getting them, um, you know, get the blood moving through there. So without those warm ups, and let's say colder water, colder temperatures, whatever it may be, non wetsuit swim can create a lot of anxiety for people. So what advice do you have for how do we prepare now that this is now becoming the norm, that there's not a warm up? Wonderful question. And um, I don't want to accept that, that it should be the norm. And um, I'm far along enough in my career where I've stayed away from the politics of sport and I don't typically get involved in, in much of that the noise end of it um, but I'm thinking that I have to now because it, it is nonsensical to not have warm-ups for events and there may be reasons for it um, they, they're probably financial constraints well build it in find a way find a way to do it don't tell me why you can't do it so as, as a coach and as a participant also you can find a way to make it to get it done to have warm-ups into races so I'd like to see that side of the sport changed and, and maybe it's a group of like-minded coaches like myself and others like you guys and maybe we'll push that, get, get that moved along. But given with what we have right now, 
we then have to start building that into our training sessions with our athletes. If you know that you only have, so there are races that have warm up, but it's three minutes or five minutes and so on. So we then have to start training our athletes within their workouts to, to be able to adapt to much shorter opportunity times for warm up. Example, as you know, BJ, we have five phases to our, to our training plan. Uh, in, in a few of those phases, we have longer warm-ups, but once we start moving into our skill building open water phase and our race ready phase, our warm-ups start getting shorter and shorter. Why? Because we're in the race phase and we don't have the luxury of these longer warm-ups, so we may as well start training our athletes to be uh, ready to go with a much shorter warm-up. And here's an example. It's interesting you asked the question today. Yesterday, one of our workouts, or our workout yesterday, our main session yesterday, was a 10-minute dress rehearsal on the pool deck. Uh, when a- athletes came, they were ready to start, and I'm, I'm a prompt starter. We begin o- on time, 6 o'clock this morning. We started, as you know, at the pool. It's 5.45, and uh, at 5.45, everyone's lined up and ready to go, and I said, we're not swimming. So and nobody knows this was coming. I said, you have 10 minutes. At 5.55, we're going to start, but you have 10 minutes now to get your, your mind in the right place and do whatever you need to do to get your muscles activated because we're going to do a 20-minute swim. Uh, let's call this a, 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 a Olympic distance swim or half Ironman swim for a very elite athlete. But we're going to do a 20-minute swim at race effort with no warm-up. Okay? So we did a simulation as to if you went to a race and you had no warm-up opportunity, which could be from poor planning or a race director not having uh, warm-up opportunity, what are you going to do? And then I took them through a series of steps of here's what we need to do in these 10 minutes to get ready. And then we line them all up and then you're off. So that's a simulation, right? Because that's going to occur on race day. So what, what are we really doing here? We're, we're putting the body through paces and the mind of what's going to happen so that when it does happen, we have some familiarity. And through familiarity, we, we usually end up, if we're doing enough times, uh, adaptation. So we're just trying to create that adaptation, right? Weird stuff's going to happen in life, and, and the more we can understand that it's going to happen and prepare for it, why do we save? We save because we know we might go through some tough times in life. So if we never went through tough times and we knew we'd have a certain income every single month, for, it's always the same we're getting higher, well, why would you need to save? You don't really need to, right? Um, and especially if you had a nest egg. If your parents or a family gave a nest egg, it's sitting there, and when you retired, you didn't need any savings because you had money. Well, that's great, but but life doesn't work that way. So we have to build in the things to be able to be ready and somewhat adapted to, and in this case, your question was no warm-ups, which is a problem. So what were some of the things that your swimmers were doing yesterday to get themselves warmed up? So we did some muscular activation uh, exercises, and then we do, as BJ knows, we have these stretch cords built into our training plan. So you have to do those. You have to do a few minutes of those and get ready, and then I had them go for a light jog because what you're trying to do is get blood flow uh, and, and some heat generated and then activate the muscles that you use for swimming. And then you have to be done with all of that in eight minutes because I wanted the last two minutes to be standing at the pool, being present, getting, putting yourself at the start line of your race, uh, Ironman, Boulder, wherever it may be, and going through and thinking about what is that going to feel like? Uh, I'm, I'm there amongst all my competitors. Everyone's lining up, or walking towards the start, you know, whether it's a rolling start or whatever it may be. Walk, dress rehearsal, go through that for those final two minutes. Ten seconds to go, five seconds to go. The gun, the horn, whatever goes off. What do you do next? So I want them to go through all of those steps so you start having that feeling. And you can feel the butterflies as you're going. If you did this properly, dress rehearsed, you'd be standing there getting ready to do your, your swim, in this case, and you start getting the butterflies a few seconds before because you did it, you, you rehearsed it. And then you go do it, you execute the swim. And guess what happens in race day? Uh, there's a traffic jam, you got there late to the race, you had just enough time to check your bike in, and then, boom, I got to get to the start because I'm off in three minutes. Oh, I did that training. Yeah. We did you, a session, a couple programming, sessions. You're programming the subconscious. It's yes. the same thing. It's, it's, um, it's, like, visu- it's like visualization. Yes. And, and um, so when I have athletes visualize, I not only have them visualize, but feel, feel the vision feel the vision, right? Because the feeling is, is what's going to get you on that cellular level and program that subconscious so that when you show up to the race, there's that part of you that's like, oh yeah, I got this. Right. And I'm trying to, we're trying to remove anxiety or manage anxiety right. and channel or, 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 or channel it properly. Right. 
-hmm. wait a minute, I did go through this. I got this. I can do this because it's easy to go to the bad wolf, right? Oh, I'm late. I didn't get any warm up. And you start doing the negative mantra yeah. stuff, right? Yep. You start feeling wronged. Like how yes. could they allow, how can they allow for this race to be delayed? Exactly. That very race in Tremblant was last year was delayed because of fog for like 40 minutes. We were just standing there and you could hear the chatter and you can, because people talk. Oh yeah. When they feel anxious, but if you just stay focused. And if you listen to the talk at races, it's always the most interesting. It's always negative talk. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was injured six weeks ago. I hurt my knee or my thigh or my ankle or my shoulder. It's all just negative chatter. Message to our athletes, stay away from that stuff. I That's, always say that. <laughs> yeah, athletes. step away. I say if you're, if you're around someone and that, that, low, like that low vibe, that low vibe is rolling, get out. Get out of that situation. Yeah. You don't, your environment is stronger than your will a lot of times, most of the time. And so, um, yeah, you want to get out of there 100%. And they don't need to change. That's fine. They can do whatever they mm -hmm, need to do. Sure. But remove yourself from that because it's not helpful. Yeah, and just be very process-driven. Yeah. So, uh, I was going to say, so we're, so you've built this, you built Tower 26. And, and I was actually going through some of the early podcasts. And at that time, you didn't really have the online program. It was probably meant, you know, you were visualizing it and it was, it was the seed was planted. But where do you see this because i've seen nothing but steam picking up for this program and, and the ability for um for triathlon specific swimming to be out there and done properly um for those people who are interested where do you see tower 26 going where do you where do you see where do you see it in like five years or what is what is its uh well the, the purpose and essence is always going to be the same my job is to provide um so we now also have, we provide full coaching services, triathlon coaching, but on the swimming end, which I think was your question, um, there's enough misinformation in, in this coach's opinion, okay? I, I know the coaches whose, whose ideas are different than mine would disagree with me, and, and that's fine. There's room for... There's perspective. Room, there's room yeah. For, yes. Yeah. But I think there's enough misinformation, and I can substantiate all my positions and articulate them pretty clearly. Uh, because I've thought through the process. Plus, I've been swimming in open water for 50 years, okay? And I've been coaching for 38, 37 years. So I have an abundance of experience, and I've been involved in triathlon since 1983. So I've got a massive wealth knowledge, and I can help athletes sift through the noise, using the, the word you used earlier, uh, that's in the marketplace. And, and boy, there's a lot of noise on the swim segment. So Tower 26 is going to continue to help to educate and, and, and shape the minds of, uh, of triathletes to, to try to help them to get the best return on their time investment. In, in fancy words, the, the ROI, right? The return on investment. Uh, to optimize their time swimming and not be there doing a ton of fingertip drills coming full <laughs> circle back. And there's, there may be value for that particular drill for some athlete that is doing something really silly, but that wouldn't be, as I said earlier, mm -hmm. one of the drills. Really silly. Yeah. That's awesome. Jerry, I adore you. I think that you're, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts. I've uh, received a lot of your wisdom through BJ. And um, I just, I'm very grateful that you found like really what you're supposed to be doing in, in this life and that you came over here to this country and you're sharing this all with us through all your experience and and getting to the other side of doubt and, and persevering. So um, yeah, and thanks so much for welcoming us into your house and, and allowing us to share you with the community. Well, of course. And We're grateful. I, I, no, thank you. But I, I have to thank my parents for that. I mean, I just had good parents that, that helped that happen. So I'm appreciative of them and, and I got to swim at seven years old. So it's sort of, I, but, but I didn't have a choice. It's all I really knew. <laughs> so we don't need to make it sound sexy. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're awesome. Thanks, Jared.